you will find that we are getting ready to go through the story this year. It is a journey through Scripture written uh, as one uninterrupted story from beginning to end. Uh, we're going to be going through this pretty much through the whole year. I think we finish in November. We're taking a few breaks along the way. Community groups are going through this. So if you want to be in a community group, sign up in the app. If you want to order a book, you can do that in the app or stop out on your way. I uh, want to let you know we've got Meals, Inc. this Saturday. How many of you have done Meals with us? Yeah, a whole bunch of you. How many of you that have done Meals would recommend Meals? Yeah, that's like, that's like 90%. There's a couple holdouts. I get it. Uh, we need a few people to help prepare. Uh, that starts at 6.30. I think you get done like at 8, 8.30. It's pretty quick. Uh, and then you can deliver. I think we need one delivery driver person too. Uh, all that's in the app. Sign up. Help us out. Uh, last I heard, we were taking about 300 meals out. Diane, is this true? Is this about 300? 210. I'm a preacher, so close to 500 meals. <laughs> we actually feed all of Bowling Green every Saturday. It is a real feat. It is spectacular. Um, yeah, and as I counted today, we have about 10,000 in here. So, um, yeah. Anyways, all right. So today, I just want you to know that... Um, some of you are going to leave church today, and you're going to go, that was horrible. I really hated that sermon. I, I just know what's going to happen. Others of you are going to leave. You're going to be like, oh, I'm glad we talked about that. We need, we've needed to talk about this for a little while, and you're going to be thrilled. I actually think there's going to be very few of you that are going to go, eh, you know. Uh, that happens probably more than we'd care to think about. Uh, but I think it's going to be a little polarizing, and, and here's why. We're going to probably talk about some stuff that some of you have never even really spent time thinking about. And others of you, the reason you're going to love it is because you've been wrestling with this issue. You've been thinking about it, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. Here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at the dynamic of Scripture being inspired by God and yet written by men. Now, I say men because I, every... Every writer of the Bible was a man, except I'm just going to throw this out there. The book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. We know it was a close associate of Paul. What if it was Priscilla? And that's the reason we don't know. What if? I don't know. I can't prove it. You can't prove it either. So we're going to stick with, with written by men, but we're going to say that holds out. There's a possibility. Anyways, so here we are. How do we work this out? How do we work this out? And the reason we're talking about this is this whole year is focused on Scripture, focused on the Word. Uh, what do we do with it? How do we understand it? How do we interpret it? What's in it? All that's happening. So today we're going to look at this dynamic of Scripture being inspired by God, yet written by men. Our theme verse we've got here is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. It says this. Let's, let's read it together. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. So there we have it. That's the thing. Scripture is inspired. It's useful. How did we get it? Get it? It's written by men. It's collected by the faithful. Next week, we're actually going to talk about the process of the canon. How did we get the canon as we have it today? How did books not make it? Some books didn't make it. Uh, how did we decide on the ones that are in there? We're going to talk about all that next week. But today, we're going to focus on this idea of Scripture being inspired, yet written by God. So how do you work this out? Um, Scripture did not come like typewritten, you know, in Times New Roman, 
or I guess if it's old enough, it have been times old Roman, fallen on the ground, like all typed out for us to read. Uh, there was a, a process of writing. And so this dynamic of Scripture being inspired by God, yet written by man, has been worked out in several different ways. I'm going to give you two that I do not think are very tenable for us to hold to. One I actually think is just counter to what Scripture says, but I want to give them to you so you can kind of get the map of the whole, whole way. Uh, the first option that some people have held over, over time is that Scripture was essentially dictated by God. So how do we work out this dynamic? Well, it was just dictated by God. Now, very few people really hold to this today. People that have, have spent some time thinking about it, examining it, very few people would say, yeah, this is what happened. What does it mean to be dictated by God? Well, it's that, you know, maybe the person who's writing the, the, you know, the, the book, which is Jeremiah, it's one of the Gospels, they're just there listening in a quiet room, and they're just waiting for God to say, all right, and then write, and then, and then they write it, and they're like, all right, next, and they just kind of, you know, follow this dictation theory. Uh, again, very few people, if any, hold to this. Uh, other people would say, well, they just, the Spirit took over their minds. And, you know, then they wrote what the Spirit put in their mind. I, again, I don't think this works. And here's why. There's so much diversity in the language. Now, we read it in English, but if you were to have it in its original languages, you'd have up to three languages. And not only that, Scripture's written in a time span somewhere in the zone of 1,500 years. So you've got old Hebrew and newer Hebrew, and you've got Greek, and some of that Greek is fancy Greek, and some of it's just more common Greek, and, and you've got a whole lot of different ways and turns of phrases and expressions. And if you were reading it in its original language, you'd go, oh, th this was definitely written by two different people. So it doesn't hold real well that it was all sort of just sort of spontaneously zapped into people's minds, but that there's a, a dynamic where we have God's truth through our personality that is spoken. Uh, it shows signs of even being collected. Some scholars really feel strongly that there is uh, some editing that's happening in the, the first few books that Moses is collecting sources uh, that may or may not be true. I'm not, I'm not an Old Testament scholar. I do know this, that the, the Gospel of Luke, that Luke himself says that he has talked to eyewitnesses, that he's interviewed people, that he's collected sources, and that he himself has put it together. And so there's an editing process that's happening in the Gospel of Luke, likely in the other Gospels as well. And so we see that there are people, there's human agency compiling and putting together the Scripture as we have it. So I think, again, that's probably one untenable view for us to have, that God just sort of like, you know, dictated it for people. There's another untenable view. And this one, I think most people here, if you're a Christ follower, you'd probably not hold on to this one. It's this idea that Scripture is inspiring, but not inspired. You know, Scripture is sort of like a really long Hallmark card with a genealogy in the middle. You know, um, that's, that's, that's the idea. You know, that people who were inspired by the idea of God wrote things about God and how we ought to live and hold hands and, and be nice to each other and and uh, slaughter animals in the Old Testament, but not slaughter animals in the New Testament, and, and all these things. And, and I'll tell you, this is not a claim that holds up with Scripture's claims about itself. And so I guess what I'm saying is you can't look at Scripture and say this is an inspiring word and then look at it and, and say, oh, well, that's okay, because that's not what Scripture says about itself. Uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 20 he says this, he says, these are written, these accounts, these stories, this language, this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
John doesn't say, I wrote this so you could sort of tuck yourself in at evening and, and have a glass of warm milk and a little bit of Jesus and feel good about yourself. He said, I've written this so that you would actually live. That Jesus came, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that apart from him, we don't have a way. We're lost. We have no life. So John says, I wrote this so you would have those things. And so that's the claim of scripture about itself. It, it, it doesn't say that it could be inspiring. It says, I'm inspired. These are the words of God. John will double down on this in 1 John 5, 13. He'll say, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, John is writing a definitive word. He's saying, listen, this should assure you of your faith. This should assure you of your life. You see, Scripture was not given to inspire you. It was given to lead you to salvation. I want to say that one more time because I really want you to hold on to this. This is the truth. Scripture was not given to inspire you. It was given to lead you to salvation. Specifically, it was given to lead you to Jesus Christ. And that's where our faith is anchored. Scripture is written so we can have a dependable understanding of God. They're more than inspiring. They're inspired and infallible. And I want to give you two positions right now that I think are popular among faithful believers. Uh, I've had enough discussions with folks here at Bowling Green Christian Church to know that both of the next two views I have are, are held by people within this church. Now, we're not a church that's got a lot of big statements, so somebody's going to come up after and be like, well, what's the church's official position statement? And the answer is, yeah, yeah we got it all. Like, it's all covered in this zone. But I would say these two probably are going to be the places or the boundaries. We would say, you know, we need to hold on to this. It's going to become clear that one of these I, I favor. Sorry. Um, and I know that some of you will disagree with that. And this might be where some of the conflict comes. And the reason I'm going to push a little bit harder on one of these views, it's real simple. Because for some of you, again, you're settled and life is good. And I'm so happy for you. And I don't want you to leave going, oh, man, I just don't know what I'm going to do with myself now. Uh, but others of you, you're facing real questions and doubt about your faith. We live in an information age. You can find things on the internet. You can get lectures on YouTube that you would have to attend a college before to find. Some of you have friends who are questioning scripture. Some of you are in college and you're, you've got professors who are questioning scripture or will question scripture. And you're wondering, how, how do I understand this dynamic? And so I'm going to push on one of these a little bit because I think we've made things harder on ourselves than we need to. Uh, let's start with the, the first one. This is the one I do prefer. It's that Scripture is inspired and infallible. Uh, here's what this means. It means that the Word of God, the words that God speaks, they're powerful words. They're contained in Scripture. They're incapable of failing. And so we have to regard Scripture higher than mere sentiment because it is the inspired Word of God. It seems that Paul understood he was speaking these words when he writes to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, We also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you. Paul is saying, listen, when I came to you and I, I preached and I told you these things that will later get written down, he said, you accepted those words as the word of God. And he says, and it's good because that's what those words are. Those weren't our words. Those were God's words. Those were words about, specifically for Paul, those were words about Jesus Christ. Paul will say, I handed on to you of what was first and most important, that Christ died, that Christ rose again, and that he's coming for us. That's the gospel. 
And he says, you've got to hold on to that because those are the words, that's the truth, that's the power of God. He'll say that in 1 Corinthians, that it's the very power of God. And, and if we were to go around this room, I know that so many of you who have who've taken Bible study seriously and devotion seriously, that you could tell me that the word of God is powerful in your life. I, I can think of going through the time of COVID and I know we don't want to talk about it, um, but uh, going through that season and spending time in Scripture, there were times as I was going through passages, and I, at that time I was, I was really very disciplined in this habit of just trying to find one phrase from the reading that, that I could hold on to through the day. I'll tell you, that gave me spiritual strength. It was an amazing gift. And I know as we, if we went through the room, I, you could maybe give me a verse or a passage or a story or a time where God's word spoke to you in a powerful way. The reason it does that is because it is the very word of God. Scripture is inspired by God. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He empowers the, the writers to write the holy prophecy, the holy history, a prescription for holy living and practice. I like the way Fuller Seminary puts this, and I want to give you sort of two views here. This one comes from Fuller. Uh, other, uh, well, here, we here we go. Scripture. So they said this is an essential part and trustworthy record of divine self-disclosure. Let's just pause there on this statement. Divine self-disclosure. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, listen, Scripture is God telling us about himself. This is what we mean by revelation. God is revealing who he is to humanity. How's he doing it? He's doing it through Scripture. Uh, all uh, uh, through divine self-disclosure. Uh, they are to be interpreted according to their context and purpose and in reverent obedience to the Lord who speaks through them in living power. And so they're saying, listen, this is God's word, this is God's story, this is God's self-disclosure, and we ought to take it seriously. We ought to interpret it in context with itself, with its purpose, and we ought to, what's this last word? It's set here, it says, and in reverent, what's that word? Obedience. See, this is the thing. Scripture is not just inspired, it's useful. And, and if you find something in Scripture, you shouldn't go, man, that, that's a good idea. Somebody ought to do that. You should look at it and go, oh, that somebody ought to be me. I ought to do that. I ought to have reverent obedience for what God speaks through them in living power. That's Scripture, friends. Divine self-disclosure. It is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. You know, they will go on to say that, that it is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And here's why that phrase is so important. You know, we all have moments in our life where we feel like God speaks to us. And, and I'm not going to say he doesn't. I've had moments where I feel like God speaks to me. But if God were to tell me something that was counter to what was in Scripture, I would say, I heard that wrong. I didn't pay attention to that right. That's just me wanting to, to think that or to believe that. You see, we've always got to come back to Scripture because it is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Now, some of you might not feel like this goes far enough. And so you want to add another word. This is another position some people have today. It is that Scripture is inspired, it is infallible, and it is inerrant. Inerrant. Now, here's what infallible means. Infallible means it is incapable of failing. Now, that's what it means. It is solid, it's secure, it's trustworthy. Uh, technically speaking, you could bank your life on it, right? Uh, inerrant, however, takes it uh, not in terms of failing, but in terms of precision. Inerrant means that it is without any type of error, without any type of technical error, spelling error, numerical error, naming error, uh, all of the above. That scripture is perfectly precise in every single way that it is, uh, is used by many conservative Bible scholars today to imply a higher level of precision when it comes to the details. 
Now, in contrast to Fuller's statement, we've got the Chicago statement. Now, some of you are going to go home and look this up. I've saved you this time. I've put links to it there in the app. Uh, here's what the Chicago statement will say about Scripture. That Scripture is holy and verbally God-given, is without error or fault in its teaching, no less than what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God. This piece here, it's without error or fault, is key. Uh, what they're saying is like, listen, every single word was chosen by God. Every single piece there. And so it is completely without error. Not just in matters of faith and practice and life, but in everything else. About the events of creation, about the events of world history, about its own origin. Then uh, it's witness to God's saving grace and in individual life. The authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded. In other words, if you've, if you've seen contracts, you know lawyers, they like to come up with words um, and phrases. And they'll say, you know, if one part of this contract is false, it doesn't mean the rest of it is false. Like if we mess up here, that doesn't mean the rest of it isn't messed up, neener, neener. Um, but what they're saying here is the Chicago statement is, listen, if any part of Scripture is wrong, then the whole thing goes in the trash can. If one bit of it is proved to be this, this, you know, this, this true to something, then you got to chuck the whole thing. It is ir, ir, well, inescapably impaired. There you go. You can read it, too. It's going to double down on this, too. Let's look at the next one. It says, We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. So they're saying, man, scientifically speaking, Scripture is always going to be true. Historically speaking, it's always going to be precisely accurate. He says, we further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the flood. There's a lot there, okay? They're saying, listen, if those first seven days of this flood, if all this stuff, if that's not literal, precise, man, then the whole thing falls apart. Now, listen, I love Scripture, I think Scripture's true. I spend time every day in Scripture, except when the days I forget. I mean, I'm human just like the rest of you. But I mean, I, it's a priority in my life. But this statement, it makes me a little nervous. And here's why. I think it takes the focus off the main message, and it puts it on details that biblical authors weren't all that concerned about. Let me give you an example. So let's say I'm reading a book. You like the book I'm reading, and I say to you, hey, this is a good book. And you're like, well, hey, how many pages are in that? I'm like, oh, it's got 300 pages in it. And you buy the book. And you take it home and you go to the end and you realize that there's not 300 pages in it. There's 289 pages in it. Are you going to call me up and say, you are a liar. You lied to me. You said there's 300 pages. There's 289. You would know I rounded up. You wouldn't think I was a liar. You wouldn't think I was trying to deceive you. I would then, if you called me a liar, I'd say, well, why don't you count all the pages, like the blank ones and the copyright and the index and all that stuff. So count all those, and I bet you get close to 300. I mean, you know that this level of precision isn't there in the way we're talking. Now, let's just say for a moment, though, that I'm your CPA or your anesthesiologist, you know, um, or your pharmacist, and I'm like, ah, it's close enough, right? 300, 289. 250, no big deal. You don't want that from me, which is why I'm not any of those things. You want a little bit more precision, okay? That is a very modern way of thinking. 
that we would be so precise that we'd have all of the numbers counted down, that we'd have all of these specific details, that we'd have things like dates, like what are those? You know, that we'd have all of these specific things that we'd use very technical terms in terms of location. You know, uh, counts that they get in the Old Testament, you see a lot of them are, are even numbers. Like it always happened this way, the way they use regional terms. Like we do the South. You know, people would say, this is the South. Go down to Alabama, ask them if Kentucky's in the South. You get a different kind of answer. You know, this is the thing. Now, you might say, well, I get that, I understand it, but I really like this word inerrant. Well, fine, good, please hold on to that. You know, keep it. Again, I'm going to just say this. It, it worries me, however, to apply this technical precision, this standard to Scripture. And it worries me because if your faith is built on this totally inerrant and precise text, then what happens if one of these numbers is somehow off? What happens? Do you quit believing in Jesus because a count of folks in, in the book of Ezra is not quite precise? What, what happens when you meet that college professor or that friend who says, you know what, Jesus said that the mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds. It's not. Do you know what seed's smaller? There's a lot, actually. But one that would have been popular in the Old Testament uh, would have been the poppy seed, and not because of opium. Yes, because of opium. But yes, okay, the poppy seed, super popular, really small really small, so much smaller than the mustard seed. In fact, it's like less than half the size of the mustard seed. And yet Jesus says, if you have faith in the size of mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds, what are we going to do at this point? Because that is technically an error. Let's just be real. That's technically, technically speaking, it is an error. So does that mean the whole thing is, is gone? Like we, we chuck it all out and we go, well, if we can't trust it to know what kind of seeds the smallest, is that really where we want to be? You see, that's the concern I have is we get into this place and we find ourselves, man, well, that is technically an error. You count up the generations in Matthew, and he's got 14 to 14 to 14 to 14. And you go, well, wait a second, there's actually more than 14 generations. What's Matthew doing here? Well, Matthew's arranging this thematically. It's two sets of seven. He's saying, listen, when the time was complete, you know, from Abraham to David and from David to the exile and from the exile to Jesus, when the time was complete, Jesus came. You see, that's Matthew's message. He's not focused on this high level of precision that we have today. What he says is infallible. Jesus comes in the fullness of time. You can bank your life on it. I know that I have, but it is not as precise as you may want it to be. Now, here's, at the end of the day, what I think I know is that nobody really believes the text of Scripture is completely without error. Let's go back to the Chicago statement, which is this big famous statement on biblical inerrancy. And here's what they say. They say, we deny that it is proper. Uh, let's just, that's a lot of technical languages. We say it is improper to evaluate Scripture according to standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage or purpose. Continuing on, we further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomenon, such as lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant selections of material and parallel accounts, or the use of free citations. Free citations would be those citations in the New Testament where they're like, hey, you know, Matthew says, hey, Jeremiah said it this way. And then you look at the passage in Jeremiah, and it's close, but it's not quite what Jeremiah said specifically. He's doing it from memory. So what they're saying is Scripture's inerrant so long as you don't look too closely, so long as you don't hold a standard to it that's too high, and so long as you don't get too technical, so long as you don't expect too much, so long as you don't want it to be precise in grammar or modern technical precision. 
Now, if you're going to hold to this inerrantist view, again, which is fine, here's what you have to do. You have to keep making up more rules and beliefs and systems to protect the original beliefs and rules and systems. And if you know me, I'm not much of a rule guy. I, I think we get into trouble when we start to say, well, this is what we believe, and, and well, because we believe that, now we have to believe this, and now we got to make all these other rules up, when really we can sort of cut through all of this and say there's this beautiful dynamic where God inspires an infallible word that we can bank our lives on. And yeah, there's going to be some human observation things in here that we might say isn't technically modernly precise, but that's okay. That's okay. Because this other system is exhausting. Here's, here's what I think we should come back to and hold on to. It said a diversity of perspectives plus a unity of thought equals reliability. Diversity of perspectives plus reliability, or unity of thought equals reliability. Uh, some of you are familiar with J. Warner Wallace. He's a Dateline-featured cold case homicide detective. He's a national speaker. Uh, he's right now a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, adjunct professor of Christian apologetics at Talbot. Uh, he becomes a Christ follower at age 35 after he decides that he's going to investigate what he thinks is the ultimate cold case, and that is the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And so he applies all of his cold case detectivery skills to this, and he decides that, in fact, he believes in Jesus. And he's spent a lot of time writing about the Gospels. One of the things you find if you look at the Gospels real carefully, this could be homework for those of you that really want to nerd out on this, is you look at all of the resurrection accounts at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, you can work Acts in there too, John. Uh, put all those together and try to come up with a real systematic, step-by-step, -step, chronological approach. I'll tell you, it's difficult. It, it's, it's doable, it's done, it's easy to sort of eventually kind of put that together. Uh, but if you're looking for straight chronology, again, the gospel writers aren't writing straight chronology. They're writing sort of themes and focuses and points that they've got that they're emphasizing. Uh, it becomes difficult. But he says, you know what, I'm not bothered by that. In fact, he says, it, it encourages me. He says, because as a, as a cold case detective, he said, I would get really nervous when everybody's words and statements and timeline and everything lined up 100%. He said, that would tell me that they all got in a room together, and they said, you know what we should say is we should say this, and this, and then that, and this happened, and then we all memorized it, and we got our story straight, and then we went out, and we went public with it. And he says that having a little bit of diversity there actually is really helpful. Now, I will say this in fairness to J. Warren Wallace. I think he's an inerrantist, so he'd probably be mortified that I'm doing this today and, and saying that his stuff kind of helps, but um, don't tell him. All right, <clears throat> so here's what he noticed. He noticed this about the resurrection, that the resurrection is made more reliable because of the appearances of Jesus. They happen for diverse purposes. Uh, Jesus arrives to the disciples. They're in that room, and he wants to have a meal with them. He's going to eat something with them. He's going to show up at the shore, and he's going to talk with them. He's going to walk with them. He's going to show up to Mary. He's going to show up to, to 500, it will say later. He shows up to all the folks in the upper room. There may have been as many as 100 in there. He's got different purposes that he shows up for. And he doesn't just show up, give the same speech, do the same song and dance, turn around and leave. He's got different purposes. And so you see a diversity there of that. You see a diversity over the periods of time. Uh, some of Jesus' appearances were very brief. He meets Mary in the garden for just a, a few moments, probably, is what that is. And then he goes. But then he walks with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he's walking with them probably for hours. So you've got a diversity in periods of time. You have a diversity of authorship. 
If you look at the Gospels alone, here's who wrote the Gospels. You've got two direct eyewitnesses, two were close associates. One was a doctor, one was a tax collector, one was a fisherman. Okay, these are who you have writing the Gospel. It's not the same group of people, the same subsection of people, the same class or caste of people. It is very different people. And they're all saying what? They're all saying the same thing, that Jesus died and that he came back from dead, that he's alive now and that he said he was going to come back for us. That's what they all agree on. They say these things all happened. It happened in diverse locations. Jesus shows up in enclosed rooms. He shows up in open areas. He shows up in Jerusalem, in Galilee. He appears at night. He appears during the day. He appears all sorts of time. He shows up in many different places in time. He shows up to people who knew him well. He shows up to people to whom he was a complete stranger. He even showed up to his brother. Wouldn't that have been a fun one? We know James didn't believe in him. Jesus shows up and he's like, I told you so. I told you. You should have believed in me. You do now, don't you? And in fact, James does. Jesus shows up to so many different people. Now, friends, if we could look at the Gospels and say the Gospels are reliable because of this diversity yet unity of thought, how much more should we hang on to the truth of Scripture? Let me give you a little bit of the diverse credibility that's there. The text of Scripture is written over 1,500 years it's written parts of Africa, Asia, Europe. Yes, predominantly there in the Middle East and Greece. Sure, yeah, it's there. It's written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. It had over 30 authors, 30 authors. And yet what happens? There's an incredible unity and coherence to this work. What accounts for that? It's the Holy Spirit inspiring men to write infallible words that are true for your faith, for your practice, for your life. Can you trust Scripture? Yeah, you bet your life you can trust Scripture. I've spent a lot of time thinking about Scripture and, and how if it was proven that, that Jesus had not come back from the dead, I'll tell you, I could find other things to do with my life and time. Like, I would, I would quit tomorrow if Jesus, if you could prove that. But the truth is you can't. And everything in Scripture points to that, points to Jesus. My faith is in Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, I believe the Bible because Jesus believed the Bible, and I believe in him. And so if you're hung up on the mustard seed, if you're out there still wrestling over the fact that the mustard seed is still not the smallest seed, let me tell you, you've missed the point. Because the point is Jesus these things were written. Why? So that you may believe, and that in believing you would have life. That's what God gave us scripture for. As the worship team comes out, I, I recognize that today's kind of a big day. Some of you maybe are still processing on the struggle bus. I, I want to say this, you know, I, I am available through the week. I'd love to talk with you. If, if you want to have a chat about this, we've kind of anticipated there might be some of these weeks we want to talk more about. I'd love to do that. Uh, if we get enough people that email we may even just set up a group kind of study thing. love to talk about it with you. Uh, but here's the thing. Here's the thing I really want you to leave with today is that Scripture is powerful because it is diverse, and yet it is unified in telling us that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is worthy of our worship, that he's trustworthy, and that we ought to give our lives to him. And so this morning, if you've yet to do that, 
I would challenge you to talk to the person that brought you to church today. Just ask them. We'll have folks over in the prayer area. If you want to talk to somebody, pray about that. I'll be sitting up here. I'd love to talk with you. But this morning, as we sing the song, let's commit ourselves to giving thanks to God because he's come for us and he's given us a reliable, trustworthy, unfailing record of his love and his action in history. Why don't you stand? Let's sing together. Jesus, my redeemer, there is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and free. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can see. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. Through the deep. 